Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 25th, 2023, the beginning of the week. We had the uh, British biographer of Orwell, George Orwell, on the show, DJ Taylor, talking about his new book, uh, The New Life uh, of Orwell. Uh, he's well known also for Another Life of Orwell, The Life, which came out in 2003. Many people consider him uh, Orwell's greatest biographer. Uh, my guest today, Anna Funda, uh, read a lot of Orwell biographies, but her new book, Wifedom, isn't about Orwell himself. It's about his wife, Mrs. Orwell, um, who uh, she believes is an invisible woman. She's brought him back. She's brought her back to life. And Anna is joining us from a hotel room in uh, Paris. Anna, uh, tell me what you learned or didn't learn from reading all these Orwell biographies back in, I think, 2017. That's a good question. Hi, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Um, yes, I went on an Orwell reading jag. So I've been a student of 20th century tyranny and a big fan of Orwell's, if I can put that in the same breath, for a long time. There are six major biographies of Orwell before this renewed one of DJ Taylor's. They include one of DJ Taylor's. Uh, and they were written and published between the early 70s and 2003. And I read all of those with great pleasure. They're all fantastic. But then I came across six letters from Eileen O'Shaughnessy, Orwell's first wife, to her best friend. And they were only found after those biographies were all published. They date from uh, the beginning of the marriage, from the end of 1936 to the end of the marriage in 1945. And the first one of them was written almost six months after the wedding, Eileen and Orwell have been living in a tiny, decrepit cottage with no electricity and one indoor cold tap. And she's been doing all the work so that he can do his writing. And she sits down to write to her friend and she says, Dear Nora, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write to you, but we have quarrelled so continuously and really bitterly since the wedding that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. And that was so hilarious to me that I turned back to all these biographies with the question, why is she such a vague and miniaturised presence in them? She's the wife of his great creative period. She went to Oxford. She has an English degree. Orwell didn't go to university. Why does she want to kill him? And what are these fights about in the early days of marriage? And the biographies say things like, the early days of marriage were idyllic for Orwell. He was never happier before or since. Conditions were perfect for him. And I just thought in between the conditions which are perfect and made without a named creator and the woman who's making them who wants to kill him, maybe there's room for a book. Certainly is room for more than one book, perhaps. Uh, I love the subtitle, uh, Anna, of the book, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. Of course, it brings up the specter of the visibility. Uh, Orwell famously warned about visibility in uh, 1984, camera in every room being watched all the time. Uh, Winston Smith, the 
hero of 1984. All he longed for was invisibility. Is there a an Orwellian quality to this notion of invisible life? I'm interested in the way that women, in particular wives, um, in this case of a great man, are written out of history and the invisibility of the work that women do. So I think that, um, you know, I was very interested in discovering Eileen and I went, to, I read all the biographies, their sources and their footnotes, and then went and found what they had left out. And the reasons and speculate then as to why you would want to make Orwell's mother and aunt minor figures in his life when they were suffragettes, Fabians, feminists. Uh, his mother, his aunt was arrested with the Pankhursts and ran a literary salon in London to which luminaries of the day like Chesterton and H.G. Wells and Nesbitt came. So reading the biographies again, you wouldn't know that that was his intellectual and political inheritance. You know, we learn really mostly about his father's line and they were, you know, minor civil servants of empire with no particular intellectual or political interests. And then there's the kind of invisibilization of Eileen and the, the way that she saved his life in the Spanish Civil War and her contribution to his work, which in the case of Animal Farm, is really obvious and was enormous. So it's those sorts of um, invisibilities that were interesting to me. And I draw a really long bow and say, let's look at this marriage of 80 years ago and let's look at how it's been represented right up into the 2000s, how this image of the, the, ma the man who did it all alone has been constructed, effectively making these biographies fictions of omission and then I got permission to use these letters and I thought I can write her in her own words, really, and in mine, in scenes, back into history. So it's a really gendered invisibility that I'm interested in. It's not in particular Orwell thinking that, uh, you know, Winston was censoring the news. Although in 1984, I have to say, um, Winston sits up in the ministry deleting the news and changing it. And Orwell based the building in which Winston works on a building that Eileen had worked in. She worked to support them during the war and one of her jobs was at the Department of Censorship in the Ministry of Information. And that department was in Senate House in Bloomsbury and Orwell took that building as his model for the Ministry of Truth, i.e. lies in 1984. So it's been a fascinating and exciting bit of um, literary and historical and biographical detective work trying to see an invisible woman in particular and women in general. Yeah, I went to that uh, college also. I was at school at Senate House, uh, which uh, was its claim or remains its claim to fame and an appallingly neo-Stalinist style building uh, in Bloomsbury. Um, and thinking of 1984, actually, uh, the, the, the character of Julia has been fictionally recreated by uh, Sandra Newman. She's coming on the show next month. She has a novel coming out, which I guess in some ways is an accompaniment to your book. Uh, in my conversation, Anna, with uh, DJ Taylor, I asked him about Orwell's attitude, treatment of women, and he said that he was very awkward. 
very uncomfortable. When I think of Orwell's work, I mean, you brought up um, uh, you you brought up the early stuff in in Burma. Did he ever write explicitly about women? He wasn't very good at writing about people, um, and that's what women closest to him said, and very good readers. And it's clear in his work, in all of his work except for Animal Farm, basically, there is a stand-in underdog uh, Orwell figure. Um, so there's John Florey in Burmese Days or um, Winston in 1984 or Gordon Comstock and Keith Dastard is just flying. So uh, he didn't really have the gift of seeing other people. His best friend Richard Rees said he thought that Orwell never, and this is a man who loved him dearly and supported him to the end of his life, said he thought Orwell never really understood another human being. Whereas Eileen um, was somebody who her friend Lettuce Cooper, said, who is a novelist, said of her, she saw through people, she, saw, she listened to what people said, and people's faces and manners were glass to her. What she saw were their feelings. And I think we see this um, influence of hers on in particular, Animal Farm, it wasn't my, uh, you know, main focus to sort of look at him really or even his work. Um, but just as she wrote in 1934, before she met Orwell, a poem called End of the Century 1984, um, which imagined a dystopian future of telepathy and mind control. It's interesting to, to speculate on her influence on his work. He wrote 1984 long after the marriage was over. And maybe the title is some sort of homage to her. Um, but with Animal Farm, they wrote it during the war. Or he, he wanted to write an essay critical of Stalin because they had fled Spain with Stalinist agents at their heels, almost literally, um, Stalinist agents had issued a warrant for their arrest and they were likely to have been killed. And Eileen, very cleverly and at great danger to herself, managed to get visas in their passports to get them out of Spain. Orwell remained terrified of communists his whole life and started to um, started to have a luger that he kept around the house, loaded, for instance. And in 1944, he thought he would write an essay critical of Stalin there's obviously a lot um, then as now to be critical of Stalin about. But Eileen had very, very uh, keen political instincts. And she said, perhaps because she'd been working at the Ministry of Censorship, or Stalin is helping us win a war at the moment. You will not be able to get an essay critical of Stalin published now. So instead, um, she had studied under Tolkien she knew a lot about fable structure and was a really good writer. And instead they set about writing the satire fable of Animal Farm. And that is the one work in which there's not uh, an Orwell underdog stand-in figure. It's an ensemble cast um, and all the characters are really deftly drawn, including the female characters. So that's a very specific um, outlier in all of his work. I have to say about Sandra Newman, I just did the day before yesterday um, an interview with her and Adam Biles, who is a novelist who works here at Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Adam has written a book called Beasts of England, which is a um, sequel, 
kind of imagined of 1984. And Sandra Newman was there talking about Julia, her novel, Imagining uh, Julia in 1984, which sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to talking with her. Um, your publisher, and sometimes uh, publishers write things without the permission of their author, uh, describes the marriage of uh, Eileen and Orwell as one of the most important literary marriages of the 20th century. Do you think that's true? I mean, I assume you assume it's true. I mean, you've, you've noted her influence on, uh, on Animal Farm. What is a, a, a literary marriage? And was it a literary marriage? What kind of marriage was it? It was a very interesting marriage, um, and it's one that hasn't been looked at before, and that's interesting too, because Orwell didn't go to university. He went and was a policeman, um, so really kind of low-level, frontline worker in the colonial empire uh, in Myanmar, then known as Burma. Uh, his family couldn't afford to send him to university, and his tutor at Eton, a man called Andrew Gao, who actually was really fond of him, said he wouldn't recommend him to Eton because it would bring disgrace on the school. But he came back from Burma and he had very, he really wanted to be a writer and he chose always, I mean, apart from Burmese prostitutes and French prostitutes and um, other sundry sexual partners, he always chose girlfriends who were very literary and from whom he could learn or talk about um, books and ideas and get encouragement. Um, and when he met Eileen, here's this brilliant woman who was top of her school, had a scholarship to Oxford and has just come, been working independently in London for nine years and is enrolled in an MA in psychology at UCL. And the, I went actually this week also to the house, the flat in Hampstead uh, where they met and he fell in love with her at first sight and came, insisted on walking her and her friend Lydia to the bus stop that evening and came back and said to his flatmate, a, um, a woman who was also studying the MA in psychology called Rosalind Obermeyer, he said, that is the woman I want to marry. Or in some accounts, that is the kind of woman I want to marry. And um, Eileen said of that night that he did propose very quickly afterwards and she wasn't, she'd never heard of him. He hadn't very little reputation and she was curious but not very keen and she said of that night I was quite drunk uh, very rowdy behaving my worst so um, she had this gift of seeing people and was very curious about him as soon as they were married um, friends thought and history kind of shows that his writing got much better much clearer much less grumpy much less exaggerated she wrote emendations on much of his work throughout their marriage, by which, you know, lots of notes and comments on the back of it, and then typed it. The biographers, one biographer says of that situation after the marriage, for instance, whether by coincidence or influence, Orwell's work improved. And that's the kind of linguistic mechanism of doubt and kind of passive tensing and passive voicing and not naming that I was very interested in. So. Yeah. He can't directly say Eileen influenced George's writing for the better because in patriarchy, and as far as we know, there is no other place on the planet, uh, it somehow diminishes a man if he got help from or was taught by or mentored by 
a woman, including his wife. So these are the sorts of issues that wifedom examines. Whether it's, you know, one of the most important literary marriages of the 20th century is hard to say without having a look at many, many other literary marriages of the 20th century. I would be pretty sure that I could have chosen many uh, literary marriages of the 20th century heterosexual ones in which it is the case that the man relied on and got a great deal from not only practically but intellectually from his wife. I think the publishers say that and I don't think it's inaccurate and I don't think it's really hyperbole at all because of the place that Orwell occupies in 20th century literature and his continuing importance you know in our day and age of rising authoritarianisms and blanket electronic surveillance. And um, I think that her influence was so enormous and so profound intellectually that it's astonishing to me that it hasn't been seen before and was extremely exciting to uncover. You mentioned Stalin earlier, um, who noticed things perhaps better than Orwell, and, and I think you note in the book or in some of your writing that Stalin certainly observed Eileen in Catalonia, even if um, Orwell didn't. And and you you suggest that Homage to Catalonia is all of our favorite books, one of one of the best books of the 20th century, that you read reread that and that she was essentially written out of it. She wasn't there. She was invisible. Why, why do you think Orwell didn't mention, I mean, even when you think of what you call patriarchy, I mean, D.H. Lawrence's work is full of references to his, his wife or wives or women, and uh, he, he was certainly no feminist. Uh, why did Orwell, did he just, was, was, was she invisible to him, do you think? She was um, vital to him. Um, so in Spain, uh, you can read Homage to Catalonia a couple of times and not really register that Eileen is there. I did a, at the, I spent, um, to my shame, longer in Spain trying to, uh, I mean, writing the Spanish passage of this book. I did travel to Spain, actually, with the son that Eileen and Orwell adopted, Richard Blair, um, at the beginning of writing this book. And he and the son of Orwell's commander, Quentin Cop, uh, organised a small tour. We went to the trenches where Orwell fought and through the streets of Barcelona, past the Hotel Continental where Eileen lived. Um, Eileen had an important political job uh, in the Spanish Civil War. She was a so-called secretary at the headquarters of the political party in Barcelona, the International Labour Party, that Orwell was fighting for. He was a militiaman off in the trenches, uh, bored out of his mind, literally trying to put his head above the parapet uh, to get a bullet to hit him, which he was eventually successful at. And um, she was working in propaganda for the party, uh, so she knew what was happening at the front because she and her boss, Charles Orr, an American economist, were turning it into rather more glorious bulletins about the achievements of the IOP and the PUM. She was responsible for supply to the men in the trenches, all the things that they needed, and communications, getting their letters and parcels back and forth. She organised for her sister-in-law, a doctor in London, to drive a big car over from London full of medical supplies. She lent the big boss, John McNair, the head of the party, money because he, like the party itself, was broke. Uh, and she knew there were Stalinist spies in her office and in the hotel where she was living. She didn't know exactly who they were, but she knew that they were there. She had very good political antennae. When Richard Rees, again, Orwell's best friend, visited, he thought 
at a particular point, he wants to take, he comes up to the office to see Eileen and he wants to take her out to lunch. And she says, no, I, I can't go with you. And he thinks that she's, um, I don't know, being kind of self-deprecating or too busy. Or he says, you know, you have to come with me. And then she takes him out into the corridor out of the office so whoever the spies are in the office can't hear and explains to him that she can't, that it will be a danger to him to be seen with her if they go out to lunch. So she knew she was a target. Um, she, when Orwell does get shot, she goes to the front and looks after all of his health care and transfer to hospitals and so on. He, he spends two and a half thousand words in homage to Catalonia describing being shunted about on the backs of trucks like a bag of bones and abysmal nursing care and complaining about all these things. He doesn't say that his wife was there helping him and organising that. And at the end, as I mentioned before, at some intense danger to herself, after she's had a Stalinist raid in her room, you might remember, if you remember the book, of six Spanish policemen raid her room and she is she has put the passports and checkbooks under the mattress. And then after that, she has to go to the police headquarters while Orwell is kind of hiding with McNair on the run and front up to where those police were sent from to get the visas and the passports to get them out. When um, they did manage to slip out of Spain and as they were going back into England, a warrant was arrested by the Stalinist forces in both of their names, so for Eric Blair and Eileen Blair, and it said that um, it was for high treason and they would likely have been killed if they had been arrested. So I, I suppose I say all of that because there was a lot for me to find underneath Orwell's erasure of her in homage and underneath the biographer's erasures of her. So DJ Taylor, who you had on last week, his um, reference, he is obviously mostly concerned with, I, with Orwell, um, but for someone who wrote a book about their experiences in Spain. Um, he writes, it would be interesting to know, once you know that Eileen was there working at headquarters, you would think that it might be something that you would be curious about perhaps to have a look at as, as I did. But Taylor wrote, I haven't read his new biography, but in the, in the previous one, he wrote, um, Eileen went to Spain, not because she was, I'm paraphrasing, I hope I get this, um, pretty much right, not because she was political, simply to be nearer to her husband um, so that she would be able to procure for him tr treats such as margarine, chocolate and cigars to send to the front from time to time, full stop, full stop. So uh, it's not just Orwell's blindness about women and in particular his wife. He's not blind to the actual wife, but he's incapable of, of writing a book that is truthful in the sense that his book is utterly informed by her political nous and knowledge at the centre of things because he couldn't have known those things. Uh, and yet I wondered really how she felt as she typed that work and edited it and kind of edited herself out of it. And my, my assumption about why um, patriarchy, as you say, I call it, it's actually... I, I'm not making that up. Um, patriarchy is just patriarchy. Uh, it's a system in which men are central and women are peripheral. And as far as we know, you know, there's no place where that doesn't apply in terms of money or time or power on the planet. And that mechanism of making 
men central is also about making women less than central or not visible whilst getting a lot of help from them in many ways. So I'm looking at this particular man and woman 80 years ago and the making of the work, but also about the mechanism because it still applies today. We are talking with Anna Funder, the author of a wonderful new book, Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life, about the invisibility of George Orwell's uh, wife, uh, Eileen uh, uh, Blair or Shaughnessy. Uh, we're going to take a very brief break. Uh, credit our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics with a keen awareness actually of Orwell and perhaps a more conservative Orwellian philosophy. Take a, We're going to do a quick uh, video and then we'll be back with Anna to talk a little bit more personally about this book. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. Check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Anna Funda, um, the author of a major new book, Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. Uh, many of you be familiar with Anna's previous book, uh, Stasiland, a classic uh, about the East German secret police. Also, her novel, All That I Am, is an enormously successful book. Uh, Anna, tell me about your personal history with this, uh, this book. I know that... Um, there is a little, you'll certainly know Eileen Blair, but there is a little bit of an intersection between your life and her life in terms of the writing of this book. I know, I kind of, I feel weird about drawing the long bow about that. But I suppose um, I've written, I've written a little bit, bits and pieces of my life and the lives of my friends, or who are those of us who are in heterosexual relationships, because I wanted to really have a look at the way that even though we are much, much better off as women and me in particular as a privileged white, at that time, perimenopausal, now postmenopausal woman married to a very nice man and still feeling this disparity in the amount of the work of life and love uh, that I do compared to my husband and my friends do compared to their male partners. Actually, it's very interesting being in France. I had um, dinner last night with my French publisher who was, who was going to bring out Wifedom and she was explaining, which I knew kind of, that pre a daycare in France is free and state provided and everywhere. And the schools go from 8.30 to 5.30. When I was at school in France, it was 4.30. And they provide hot lunches. So there is no expectation necessarily that um, in Australia, daycare can cost $200 a day and it's privatised. Um, and also she was saying to me here that nannies uh, or babysitters, as you call them, are tax deductible. So none of those things apply in Australia. And I think most of them don't apply in the US. So... The situation of women with children in different countries is different. I can just sort of um, say that. Not that the French women are, you know, spectacularly more liberated than anyone else. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I was going to, I found myself at this point where I thought I'm actually weirdly 
I tell you how it started. This I found not the book, but this particular aspect of private life and representing their private life and kind of using my private life, very different as it is, and that of my friends to draw these parallels about invisibility and about invisible and unsung labour of women. Um, at the end of his life, when Orwell was really, really sick with the TB that killed him at the beginning of 1950, in 1949, he was keeping a what he called a private literary journal. And in that journal, he sometimes put entries in the third person. Sometimes they were about like his mother and aunt and their suffragette feminist friends and conversations that he'd overheard as a child. Uh, and one of these remarks was also in the third person and it was about women. And he wrote, the thing, you've got it. <laughs> um, I'm going to paraphrase, but I, you've got it up there on the yeah, screen. Yeah, but some people will be listening, so you need to. I, I mean, I have okay. to admit, this was the most breathtaking statement i know so to tell us what I he know. says or what he wrote yeah so he said um as you've got it there i can do it more accurately now there were two great facts about women which you could only learn by getting married and which flatly contradicted the picture of themselves that women had managed to impose upon the world one was their incorrigible dirtiness and untidiness the other was their terrible, devouring sexuality. He suspected that in every marriage, the struggle was always the same. The man trying to escape from sexual intercourse, to do it only when he felt like it or with other women. The woman, the woman demanding it more and more and more and more consciously despising her husband for his lack of virility. You know, you laugh. A lot of people have laughed when I've, I've been touring for six weeks now, Australia and the UK. And people do laugh. I think it's very... Well, it's a chilling laugh, Anna. I don't think it's particularly funny, but it, I don't no, know what else you're supposed right. to do. I mean, it's absurd it's laughter right. that Orwell would write anything so, I guess, un-Orwellian, or I don't know what, what, what or un-Orwell-like. I mean, it's not the kind of thing you would... Expect. Would you have... I mean, you, you know a lot about the man. Were you surprised when you came across this? I was really sad and you know because it combines a kind of paranoia the thing that they don't tell you you know who who owes it to him to be told about women and then he he only ever lived with one wife so these comments refer to Eileen so he's saying disgusting dirtiness and untidiness and sexual veracity sexual appetite and I thought well how was it for her probably too much cleaning and not enough or not good enough sex in fact, just after the marriage, she told an ex-girlfriend of Orwell's, Mabel Fiertz, who was an older married woman who had helped him enormously, found him his first agent and, and got him published, first publisher, and um, really encouraged him. And Eileen had said to Mabel, she thought that Orwell had had too much sex before marriage. And quite understandably, the biographers don't know what that means, and I'm not sure what that means either. And one of them says maybe he was too rough. Another says maybe he was jaded and unresponsive. But all of these things, when I was reading them, made me think, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go into his private life. He would, you know, he, he, if he's not already rotating in his grave, he would really hate that. And I would hate it if someone did that to me. But then I realised that a man's private life 
is where a woman lives. And to actually find Eileen and uncover her from his erasure of her and the biographer's subsequent erasure of her that dates up to now, I would have to go there. I have to find out how she lived. I have to find out who was doing the work and what their intimate life was life like as much as I can. So really, even though it's disturbing, that quote, it sort of um, gave me permission to go in there and, and um, find her. I think Orwell wasn't very interested. He didn't really understand people, as we mentioned before, much as he was charming at parties and women liked him and were curious about him. Um, I don't think he was primarily sexually interested in women. Yeah, he probably, uh, DJ suggests, he didn't say this, but I implied from what he said that uh, he preferred his chickens and his goats to his women. I think he preferred men to women. Uh, there's no real beating around the bush about it. You mean it. sexually or just in everything? Yes, yes I so mean So you sexually. think that Orwell was in practice or just in theory a homosexual? Uh, I think Orwell was enormously vitriolically extremely for the day homophobic so he um his definition of decency a core orwellian value has to do with integrity in the way that we would understand being the same inside and out the usual sense of decency or integrity but also he uses it sometimes to refer to heterosexuality he thinks that there's something indecent about homosexuality of course he went to eton he was in love with a boy at eton homosexuality was common there. Um, he then spent a year with a man called Edward Roditi uh, in London, going to sort of cheap vaudeville acts and uh, eating in small Chinese restaurants. Roditi, this is something that only one biographer mentions, Roditi was a homosexual who preferred to have sex with men who identified as straight. So uh, Mabel, who knew him very well, when he bashed, Orwell bashed his flatmate, Rainer Hepenstall, once for coming home drunk in this kind of vicious way. And Mabel, who had been sleeping with Orwell and had liked him for a long time, known him very well, tried to comfort Rainer by saying, uh, I think it's just disappointed homosexuality. The other flatmate, Orwell, brought tea to every morning and sat on the edge of his bed. And that young man thought that Orwell's feelings towards him were intensely homoerotic. There are cases where DJ Taylor describes one of him taking a 16-year-old boy, quote-unquote, off to chat and then Taylor writes, whose biography, I have to say, you can read with enormous pleasure and great delight. Taylor says, uh, and behind this lurks the dark horse. So Taylor is saying and not saying something at the same time about what Orwell is doing or wants to do with these boys. My gut feeling is he would have been a lot happier having sex with men, but I I, you know, the Kips, when he went down and out, there's a tradition of sort of up, more upper-class men going on effectively kind of sex tours, really, in the East End or the poor bits of northern England and so on. And homosexuality was rife. I don't know whether he was actually having sex with men, and I don't think anyone will ever know unless someone can uncover it. But he was um, much more interested in that. William Empson, his very good friend, the author of Seven Types of Ambiguity, said after Orwell died, you know, for someone who loved the workers um, as he did, when we were younger, most of us did it practically. So he was puzzled by the homophobia and then... Yeah, I mean, it certainly suggests a, a rereading or a rethinking of 
as you say, down and out in Paris and also road to Wigan Pier. How does this leave our view of, of Orwell? I mean, the more you talk, Anna, uh, the more chips off St. George Orwell's uh, statue. Uh, it's rather like pulling down those statues in East Germany that you wrote about in Stasiland. Um, where does this leave us? Is he just a, a, a typically hypocritical male? Where does it leave 20th century liberalism and the rights of the individual? And, and perhaps most importantly, where does it leave us in terms of the tussle between liberals and conservatives to inherit Orwell's intellectual legacy? Orwell's intellectual legacy is enormously important and it takes nothing away from the books to understand uh, more about the man who wrote them. In fact, I think it's, um, I grew up uh, studying literature at university in the days where we talked of the, where we were taught to think of texts as texts in some postmodern way and that the author was dead and didn't matter. But the author, speaking as one myself, although I draw absolutely no comparison with Orwell, who the author is is very important and very interesting as someone from whom the work comes. 1984 is vital to us. It's given to school kids in the UK and Australia to read. Um, uh, it's vital because it's a really wonderful analysis and actually Animal Farm as well of tyranny. And 1984, particularly because we live in a world of rising authoritarianism and tyranny. And as I said, blanket electronic surveillance. You know, the telescreens are in our pockets and on the streets. Uh, so I think it's really, the work is enormously important. To imagine that, so the interesting thing is that we want this fantasy or history, historically people have wanted this fantasy and Orwell wanted it of himself as well and he contributed to it, of a decent kind of underdog everyman figure, a kind of vanilla superhero of literary genius who somehow has the insight to create a book like 1984. 1984 is... Uh, misogynist everyone knows that you know Winston has fantasies of raping a woman quite early on in the book and slitting her throat at the moment of climax it's not for the faint-hearted um, but it is also paranoid it's sadistic it's violent and I say that not in any way to take away from it I think that it's chilling and its power in some ways comes from that we want our artists writers or filmmakers or painters often to show us things, I mean, screens are full of violence all the time, to show us things that terrify us or things that we should be aware of politically uh, or straight up violence or whatever it is, relationships between people that are not always vanilla and pleasant. We want that between the covers or on screen in some safe and beautiful form, which is resolved. That's what the purpose of great art is. But to imagine that the person who is making that and having those insights about politics and about people is going to be some, you know, um, hail fellow, well-met, decent chap who never kind of put a thought wrong or never ventured into sadism himself uh, or misogyny himself or paranoia himself uh, is, is, to my mind, really naive and it kind of does a disservice to the work to imagine that it was written by this vanilla character. And it does a service also to writers and thinkers everywhere if we imagine that the work is created alone. It is created in conversation often with our writing friends, with our 
life partners and so on. So to see that Animal Farm, which is an outlier in all of his works, as I say, was written by the two of them each night as the bombs fell in London. They got into, co- into under the covers in bed to stay warm and worked on it. And then she went to work at the Ministry of Food to support them, bought the food for dinner, came home and cooked it for him and whoever was bombed out hopped into bed and they went over what he'd done that day. You know, this is a woman who, as I said, studied under Tolkien, knew fable structure inside and out, had wanted to write a book about the animals that they um, kept in the early days of marriage in this little cottage. She'd named the goats. Orwell was obsessed with goats. DJ Taylor is correct there. And she had named them one after Mabel, their ex-girlfriend, or possibly his mother, whose name was Ida Mabel, and the other one after his Aunt Nellie, and had wanted to write a book uh, about the animals on the farm earlier on. So what I'm doing is enriching a view of history. It seemed to me um, uh, if my work can sit alongside this rather more partial, and I mean it in both senses of the word, view of Orwell that we have had before, uh, it kind of completes it and enriches it. The other thing I would say about Orwell is that I am grateful to his thinking and his work, particularly on doublethink, and that has accompanied me in all of my work here. So he says, he recognises, I don't know how much time you've got, but He recognises in Burmese days as a very, very young man. He's out being a white policeman interrogating locals and oppressing them in what is effectively the drug-running British Empire. And he goes to clubs and sees that the white men there imagine themselves to be decent, all the while treating the local population who are effectively enslaved and brutalised as subhuman and saying unbelievably racist things about them. But all the while, they imagine they are decent. And then in 1984, he expresses this so clearly in the idea of doublethink, which he says is the idea of holding two things in your mind at the same time. One of them is conscious and the other has to remain just below the level of consciousness because if it rose up to the level of consciousness, it would bring with it, he says, a feeling of guilt. So those ideas are bookending his work as a very young man and then as a dying man writing 1984. And for me, you know, patriarchy is the double think that allows us to imagine that a man wrote all of this alone and that the woman can be existing just below the level of consciousness because if she rose to the uh, rose to the top or some equal level or we had to see her, it might somehow take away from him and make him feel guilty. So... There's no point cancelling him or anyone, I don't think. Uh, that's some other kind of tyranny that, um, for, and from there no art comes. I think we need the ideas, we need the work, and we need, we need to see how they were made. 